He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm your co-host, Jack Heald, and we have with us today somebody that I have been reading about for the last hour and lost track of the time. Dr. Stephen Hussey, a functional medicine doctor. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Phil, why did you invite Dr. Hussey on the on the show? Yeah, so you know, um, we certainly have been uh, developing a theme here about uh, thinking outside the system and going outside the typical medical system. And you know, over the past few weeks, we've had a couple of uh, traditionally trained allopathic doctors who then kind of discovered some of the flaws in the system and are now finding ways to uh, get outside the system. Uh, Stephen's background is, um, you know, different. He didn't train within the allopathic medical system. Um, and, uh, you know, his background is in chiropractic. And I will fully admit that, you know, back when I started my career, um, I had been taught and I believe that, you know, chiropractors were quacks and that they did all this crazy stuff. Uh, but uh, I've learned both through my personal experience and dealing with many uh, very smart uh, chiropractics uh, that that is not the case. Um, I came across Stephen a few years ago. I think I heard him on a podcast originally and then started interacting on social media. And, um, you know, what uh, intrigued me was his uh, thoughts about um, the cardiovascular system and how the heart works and what it does and doesn't do. And uh, again, conflicted with a lot of the information I had learned. But uh, I'm already interested. Yeah. As I looked into it, you know, uh, I found myself again saying, you know, here I am a heart surgeon and I'm learning about the heart uh, from a chiropractic uh, physician. And so uh, his new book came out in April. It's called Understanding the Heart. And I'm excited to dig into it with him. Uh, so with that, uh, welcome, uh, Steve. And, and uh, you know, please fill in a little bit about your background, um, how you got involved in chiropractic and how you got interested in the heart specifically. Yeah. Um, well, you know, just like most people in, in, in this space, like the health space, the kind of the leaders in the space, it, it all was started by my own health journey. And so when I was a, a kid, I had a lot of inflammatory conditions. I had um, chronic hives that just used to break out all over my body. I had terrible allergies. I had IBS, had asthma, all kinds of stuff, and ultimately ended up with autoimmune type 1 diabetes um, from that inflammation. So my body attacked part of my pancreas. And now some the cells that make insulin in my pancreas don't make insulin anymore. So I'm type one diabetic. Um, and I learned, you know, as my parents and I were, were thrown into the world of Western medicine to, you know, and relied on that for management of these conditions. I learned that, um, you know, first of all, what I didn't learn was that why I had these conditions and how I could potentially correct them. Um, but what I also learned is that being type one, which is kind of collateral damage that I won't be able to correct now, um, heavily predisposes me to heart disease. Um, and so, uh, you know, two to four times increased risk. And so I learned that, um, due to damage to microvessels that I was, I was predisposed to these types of things. 
And so, you know, throughout my various forms of education, I, my ears always perked up when something about the heart came up or the vascular system or, or heart disease. And so I just tried to soak in as much as I could. And, you know, when it came time, you know, graduating from college, you know, to decide what I was going to do, um, I, I had been really, I had a really good relationship with my pediatric endocrinologist growing up and it kind of inspired me to be a doctor, but I'd learned some things in college that made me kind of think that I didn't want to be a, a medical doctor. I wanted a different philosophy. Um, and so I chose chiropractic, not necessarily because I think it's better than anything else. I just, I, it was just, I'd been to chiropractors my whole life and I was like, well, that sounds good. You know, let's, let's go be a chiropractic physician, um, get some kind of medical professional degree. And, and so that's what I did. And, uh, people like to have some other inspiring story besides that, but that, that was pretty much the decision. That's how it, that came about. Um, and, but you know, my whole life, um, even after chiropractic school, um, you know, for the last uh, 10, 15 years, I've just really been searching for, you know, the causes of, of heart disease. Um, you know, and I found a lot of interesting things, um, you know, aside from, you know, the theory that, you know, cholesterol causes heart disease and how that's not necessarily true, but also just that we've misunderstood the, the function of the heart itself. Um, interesting things like why the heart's so, um, resistant to cancer, uh, lots of different things that, you know, eventually, um, I started sharing on social media and people tend to, to like it. So I ended up writing a book and, and then here we are. Okay. So, uh, that's a, that's a fine kettle of fish you've dropped us in. We've misunderstood the heart. You gotta expand on that. Yeah. Well, I think we've misunderstood uh, the, the function of the heart, I think, and okay. why it's there and what it does. Um, so to, to preface this, um, this idea, we have to talk about fourth phase water, um, oh, which is, it. this is something that um, is recently, well, it's been studied for a long time uh, by guys like Gilbert Lang and Albert St. Georgie. Um, and, but more recently by Gerald Pollack at the university of Washington. Um, and he's written books called the fourth phase of water and, cells, gels, and the engines of life. But in essence, uh, water has the ability to hold energy. Um, and, you know, we humans are, you know, we're anywhere from, you know, 70, 80, 85% water, so to speak. Um, and so when water holds sufficient energy, it's this very unique liquid that can do that. This radiant energy that can come from various sources. When it does that and it gets next to a hydrophilic surface, which is a water loving surface, it will actually structure itself into what's called a fourth state or fourth phase of water. There's solid liquid gas. This is more like a gel. Think jello. Um, and it's got different names. It's called structured water. It's called exclusion zone water because of different properties that it has. Um, and it turns out that this happens in lots of places in nature. And it also happens uh, in the arteries of living things, uh, including humans. Uh, and they've actually shown this, that it does form in, in the arteries of chick embryos um, in their lab. And so what so, happens, so the blood, the, the, the water in the blood in the arteries, when it contacts the surface, the interior surface of the artery, um, flips over into this fourth phase of this fourth state of water. Right. So, so the blood is, is a little bit, a little bit less than half water. Uh, and so that water, if it's that water in the blood, if it's sufficiently energized, um, holding energy, when it gets next to the lining of the artery, which is a hydrophilic surface, um, as long as it's a healthy artery, um, then it will structure itself. 
um, into this fourth phase water. Uh, and so this, this forms this kind of gel like substance around the lining of the artery. And I want to, I want to emphasize this gel is water. Yeah. So it's, it's not something else. It's just water in a different, uh, state. It's yeah, not well, a solid. It's, it's not a gas. It's not a liquid. It's, it's right. a fourth state. Yeah. And I, I guess I could, if I can nitpick a little bit, like maybe it's not truly water because water's H2O, right? Um, and so this, the way that it forms, it actually cleaves off one of the hydrogens. So you're left with uh, an O and an H and those other O and H's team up with other O and H's that have been cleaved off and they form this lattice like structure, um, that lines up planarly against the lining of the artery. So I guess you could technically say that it's components of water. It's a, it's a different molecular structure slightly, um, but I, it's formed I about, from water. I read that. It's H3O2. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what's tetrahydrous dioxide or something? I yeah, don't exactly. Yeah. And so it's, 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 but it's formed from water. Water has to water. be energized to form this, this structure. Now it can, it can go right back to water as well um, by being broken down and then a hydrogen added back to it. It can easily go back and forth. Um, now there's certain properties. So, so because of the way I just described that it formed. So when you cleave off a hydrogen like that, um, it makes, since the oxygen is a bigger molecule and we have these, an even amount of oxygens and hydrogens now, that, that, uh, that fourth phase water that's there is a very electronegative uh, space. It's a very electronegative uh, component to it. Um, and then the hydrogen ions in the middle with other things and also in the blood creates a very positive space. Um, and that creates an energy gradient that propels blood flow. Um, and they've shown this over and over again in Dr. Pollock's lab. Um, when you put a energized water and you put a hydrophilic tube in the water, flow starts to happen with no pump, no need for anything else. And it will continue to flow as long as energy, radiant energy is put to into the system. And radiant um, energy is light. It, light. It could be light. It could be uh, electromagnetic uh, energy from the earth um, or from other humans. Um, there's lots of different types of radiant energy, but the most absorbed by water is infrared light at the 3000 nanometer wavelength. Um, but there are various types of, of different lights you could use that could energize the water in your body. The sun is, is 40% infrared. That's the original source of, of this kind of stuff. Um, this is so exciting. I can hardly stand it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So now we've yeah. got the, we've got the, the concept of this fourth phase, fourth state of water propelling blood through the arteries carry on yeah you so don't understand the heart right so so largely especially in the smaller you know arterioles and capillaries and things like that um you know there's when, when you look at the heart and the physics of it there's no way a heart the size of the one we have could could effectively pump blood throughout the entire arterial system or the vascular system um there's just no way it could it could uh, create enough force. And it makes sense too, because like, if I was going to, like, if I had, you know, water in my feet and I wanted to pump that water from my feet back up to my heart or back up to my head or something like that, I wouldn't put the pump at the top of the hill, pump it down and then back up. You know, that's just, it creates a, a I guess in the, in the engineering or physics where that creates a lot of issues uh, that would be really hard to do. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, there's muscular contraction that helps blood move and there's um, there's one way valves in the veins that prevent backflow and things like that. But for the, for uh, the most part, 
uh, the blood is moving more or less on its own, especially when it gets out into the periphery, like the real periphery. It's moving on its own through these mechanisms of fourth phase water um, that are, you know, um, structuring the water into the lining of the arteries that propels this blood flow. And they've shown this too. Like um, there's these old experiments in the forties and they repeated them in the sixties where they euthanized the dog and the blood continued to flow after the heart stopped beating for two, three hours. Um, and then they've shown it again in Dr. Pollock's lab recently. Two, three that, hours without the, the heart pumping? Yeah, without the part, heart so contracting, it's, it's, I would is say. It, it's flowing through the heart without the heart contracting? Yeah. And there's actually re- research that shows that in, in endurance athletes, um, uh, when, when their heart rate gets up to above a certain level, I think it's, I think it's above 180 um, in those athletes, um, that the, the heart really stops uh, contracting so much at all. Uh, the blood's just moving through it unimpeded um, uh, because, you know, what's deriving the blood flow is tissue demand. Um, so, so then, so there's two reasons. There's two things. One, cool. the, the fourth phase water <laughs> that forms onto the lining of the artery, it, it propels the blood flow, which makes it so that the heart doesn't have to work. I mean, the heart does do a little bit of pumping, but it's no, really no more pumping than enough to get the blood through the heart itself and maybe through some of the bigger arteries. Um, but the rest of it is, is this mechanism of fourth phase water. So it's, it's repelling blood flow. But the other thing is, is that, um, this fourth phase water is, is called also called exclusion zone water because when it forms, um, it excludes pretty much anything that's not it. So the only thing that can really get through are some small hydrated ions, um, that, that can squeeze through it because of the way that it lines up and the way that it stacks on itself. Um, so it's also this protective layer. Um, this protective barrier for the arterial lining um, that can help protect us against damage that could eventually lead to atherosclerosis and things like that. Um, but that's a different conversation. If we're talking about like what yeah. the heart is and and why it's there. So if, if we've got the blood largely moving on its own and the heart doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, forcefully pumping um, the fluid, the blood, then why is it there? Well, there's this guy, there's this guy in Spain, um, this researcher um, named Francisco Torrent Quasp, and he found, um, or I guess, he, I guess he kind of, he unraveled the fact that um, the heart is this one big band of muscle that's wrapped up on itself. Um, and even in, even in the very like inner lining of the, of the ventricles uh, and of the atria, like the, the heart muscle is, is oriented in a way that it spirals. So when it contracts, it, it rotates. Um, and so there's a reason for that. It's because, um, it, when the blood moves through the heart, it vortexes it or swirls it, uh, in a way. So one of the other ways that Dr. Pollock has found that you can energize water is vortexing it or swirling it, swishing it in the presence of oxygen. And we see this in mountain streams. Um, like when they're going over the rapids, the water turns kind of white or when it goes past the rock and it kind of swirls around the, the, the rock a little bit. Um, and since the blood, always has oxygen present, even in the venous blood, there's still oxygen present. Um, when it moves through the heart, the heart is actually vortexing it. So when it flows through different valves, um, it, it kind of swirls or eddies on, on either side of that. Also when the ventricles contract, it spirals it. And so the heart is, is this vortexing machine. It's kind of, it operates more like a hydraulic ram, which is so, flow dependent. Yeah. And okay. So, so the, what that implies is that the function of the heart is not is not a pump, but to electrically potentiate the blood. Am I, is that correct? Right. So, so technically I guess you could say the heart is responsible for the movement of the blood, just not in the way that we thought, but, but not as a pump. 
Okay. Right. And and I would I would argue that there's no way that the heart itself could energize the blood enough to create those mechanisms in the periphery that get the get the blood flowing. That's why we need to be in the right environment, which is okay. you know million, in contact with the a earth. A million different the questions here. Yeah. 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 And very- the first one is Phil <laughs> cardiac surgeon works on hearts. How does this strike you? I mean, this when, the first time you heard this, this must have set off all kinds of alarm bells, it, I it, guess. Yeah, exactly. You know, the when I first started hearing of these concepts, you know, it, it certainly did set off the alarm bells and this can't be right. But then as I started to think about it and I matched it up with, you know, what I actually see in the operating room, it does make sense. You know, when you look at how the heart contracts, um, you know, it's exactly this sort of spiral uh, pattern. Um, around the, you know, it's not a kind of side to side squeezing in, it is a spiral type motion. And the heart actually, you know, you can see it rotating, uh, basically in the chest as it's uh, contracting. Uh, So, you know, that that certainly matches up with this. And, you know, we can go back to some of the earliest uh, anatomical, you know, sort of descriptions, Um, you know, Gaussier, uh, certainly, you know, I think, brought these ideas together. But, you know, when you go back to some of, I want to say they were like Da Vinci's, you know, anatomical drawings, um, you know, he depicts the heart as this sort of spiral wrap of muscle um, that, uh, you know, kind of goes along with that. So um, the other thing that gets real interesting is when you start to think about heart failure in this context, um, yeah. And congestive heart failure is, you know, one of the most common conditions uh, that people, um, you know, suffer from and end up dying from. And uh, again, it it starts. There are a lot of things about this concept that uh, start to make sense. And um, you know how heart failure may not necessarily be primarily, you know, the actual muscle of the heart weakening, um, but this sort of drainage of energy, we'll say, or inefficient energy within the system uh, that's ultimately uh, leading to these problems. Um, But, you know, it also answered some questions that, you know, always sort of troubled me as to, you know, exactly what uh, Stephen was talking about. You know, the blood goes down to your feet and has to get back. And, you know, there's you the force in the arterial side of the equation can be measured. You know, we have blood pressure and we see that force, but you, there was very little pressure in the venous system. Uh, so, you know, how does it all, you know, get uh, kind of returned to the heart? Uh, so this sort of flow that's going along with the energy flow starts to make more sense. So is this, is this, this problem that there's just not, sufficient pressure in the venous system is that something that that the whole realm of cardiology and blood flow and in allopathic medicine is it a question they just don't ask is it just like oh yeah everybody knows there's not enough pressure to make it all work but it works so yeah is it just one of those it's one of those things that i don't bring it up at cocktail parties because it's 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 just considered rude to. Yeah. Most doctors probably just choose not to think about it because it's sort of a uh, unanswered question about the whole, uh, the whole concept, the whole design. Um, We're 19 minutes in and my mind is thoroughly blown. <laughs> yeah. Right now. 
So, you know, one of the things I, I, I think this leads into us discussing is, you know, the, this concept of having the exclusion zone, um, you know, along the lining of the blood vessels and that, you know, in order for things like cholesterol to make it, you know, into the blood vessel wall from the blood supply, you would need, you need to have disruptions of this system. And of the, of the exclusion uh, of zone. the exclusion zone, you know, because cholesterol won't can't cross that uh, exclusion zone. Cholesterol is a larger molecule and wouldn't cross that exclusion zone. Uh, and so this brings us back to the concept that, you know, the things that lead to heart disease end up not being the cholesterol itself. But there needs to be something that happens first uh, that would then allow the cholesterol to cross into the you know blood vessel walls. Okay, so Dr. Hussey, do you have a theory about this? Do we know? We got yeah, a model definitely. to explain it? Yeah, definitely. So and and you know, so the focus is on cholesterol because you know we see it at the at the end of the at the end of the process, you know, but really the body was just responding to something else using the only thing it really could to to patch up some damage so that it didn't create worse damage or a rupture of an artery, which would be way worse. Um but um but yeah, so we have to create this damage first. We have to you know, first break down this exclusion zone water, then we have to kind of damage the artery uh, to where we get proliferation of endothelial cells. And then the body starts to say, oh, we need to do something about this. And if the endothelial cells can't repair themselves because we're insulin resistant, um, which is, is very common, you know, type 2 diabetes type thing, um, then yeah, the body will take, you know, cholesterol, minerals, different things to, to kind of quote unquote repair that, that arterial lining. Um, but it all starts with what happens first, what damages the endothelia, what damages the, the fourth phase water, uh, the exclusion zone. Um, and that is a, a high states of what's called oxidative stress or inflammation. And there's lots of different things that could cause that. This is why, you know, um, markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein are so indicative of, you know, atherosclerosis and heart disease. Um, and, and why insulin resistance is also so indicative and, and uh, a risk factor for heart disease. But, um, but yeah, so there's, there's lots of different things that could cause this. And, and so I, I talk about like, it's everything from psychological stress to, you know, toxin exposure, external toxin exposure, um, poor diet, being insulin resistant or eating, you know, fatty acids that are easily oxidized. Um, but the important thing is, is that people want to say, you know, there's such this focus on lipids and cholesterol and, we want to break them down into, um, you know, not just taking a lipid panel, but we want to take the oxidized LDL and the LP little a and the, um, uh, the, the particle size and all this stuff. And, and all those things give us a better idea, I guess, if someone's at risk, but it's not those things creating the risk. It's not the small dense particles or the oxidized LDL creating the risk. It's the things that cause oxidized LDL and the things that cause small dense particles that are creating the risk. And those are the things that cause oxidative stress. And so, like I said, those could be high psychological stress. They could be toxin exposure from, you know, literally from the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, or the cosmetics we put on our body, the cleaning products we use, all those different things can cause damage. Um, but then just a poor metabolism in general. Um, so being reliant on a glucose-based metabolism has been shown to create more oxidative stress um, and more damage, um, uh, more free radical production, I guess. Okay, uh, from those things. Uh, you, you got to remember, this is not necessarily a medical audience. <laughs> uh, 
So then slow me down. Ask me what you want. I, I, I think I'm sticking with you, but I've also been being educated by Dr. Ovedia an hour a week for the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and for folks who are new to this, back up and kind of put some of that, the, this oxidative causes of oxidative stress. Um, you said a glucose dependent diet, I think, or something like that. Put that in layman's terms. Talk to me like I'm. A, yeah, a so so in your so like when, I mean oxidative, I mean free radical. So the, when a free radical is a molecule with an unpaired electron, uh, and it really wants to be paired, um, it doesn't like to not have that paired electron. I, I compare it to the Looney Tunes Tasmanian Devil. It's going around like crazy trying to find something to be paired with, and it'll steal it from anything, um, including including something that would damage the tissue to get that another electron. Um, so remember just. Just a note that remember when I talked about the fourth phase water and how electronegative it is, um, it's got e- electrons that can be stolen. Um, so if there's a high amount of these free radicals uh, in, in the bloodstream then or things that can act like free radicals in the bloodstream, they can damage the fourth phase water. Now, just like, just like your car um, burns fuel and it has an exhaust, it has waste products, right? So anytime we burn fuel, we also make exhaust. We make waste products. Um, we make product, byproducts, I would say. Some of them byproducts, some of them waste products. You could probably consider them all byproducts. But um, so water is one. Carbon dioxide is one. Um, and, you know, we, we breathe out the carbon dioxide. Water, our body can use for lots of different things. Um, but a free radical is also one, um, one of those things. Now, they're not completely harmful. They, they do act as signaling molecules to tell your body different things. Um, but if we get too many of them, they can create an issue because then they're running around looking for a paired electron or an electron to get paired with. And they start damaging tissue They start damaging mitochondria. They can damage the cell. They can get into the bloodstream and damage the lining of the artery. And so we don't want high amounts of this oxidative stress. Now a glucose based metabolism, metabolism, especially a processed uh, carbohydrate diet um, and, and fueling your body and fueling your cells with only those to the point where you've lost metabolic flexibility or the ability to burn fat as well. Um, when you burn glucose, you get less uh, energy from that. You get energy, but you get less from it. And so you have to keep burning more and more glucose in order to keep up um, with the energy production. And that's going to make more free radicals. Whereas you burn a fatty acid, you get more energy. So you have to go through that process less of times and you get less free radicals at the end. Um, I want to stop you right there because you said something I hadn't heard before. When you have a glucose-dependent metabolism, you lose the ability to – well, I think you called it metabolic flexibility. You lose metabolic mm-hmm. flexibility. Explain what that means. Yes, yeah, so metabolic flexibility is just the, the ability to readily go back and forth from burning different fuel sources in your, within your cells. Um, so mainly that's, that's uh, glucose and fatty acids. Um, and you can add ketones to that if your body is in a state where it's making ketones. Um, and so now there's this thing called oxidative priority. Your, your body or lots of the cells in your body, which the heart seems to be unique in that it doesn't quite do this. But um, oxidative priority means that if you have certain substrates, certain fuel sources available, it's going to burn them in a certain order. So alcohol is first. It's always going to burn alcohol first um, and if it's present. And then glucose is next. Um, and then there's, there's protein in there kind of, but really that's only used in times of starvation. And then at the end of that is, is fatty acids. So if you're, 
if you're eating a lot of processed carbohydrates, which if you're eating the standard American diet, then you're eating a lot of processed carbohydrates. Um, then your body's always going to choose to burn those carbohydrates first. And if you give them enough, then it's just always going to burn carbohydrates and it's going to downregulate mechanisms that it would use uh, to make and use fatty acids, which is why, you know, in the, in the keto crowd, when you go low carb, there's this keto adaptation phase or this keto flu or whatever, because your body's having to learn how to burn fatty acids again. And you feel kind of crappy for a while because you your fuel source is not quite there. Right. Um, so you, so you're not very that metabolically flexible sense. because you've trained your body to just burn glucose. That makes um, sense. Okay. And that, that burning of glucose, like I said, makes less energy for you. So you have to keep burning it, which is why when you eat high carbohydrate meals, you're usually hungry two hours later, um, because you burn right through it and then you gotta, we've talked gotta about that one. Yep. Yeah. Um, but, um, but also it creates more free radicals, more exhaust in, in the cells. Um, and so that's going to lead to more oxidative stress which then damages lots of different tissues in the body. But specifically what we're talking about is maybe the lining of the endothelia um, or the fourth phase water breaks it down. What's, um, what's the endothelia? I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the cells that line the artery. The cells that line the artery. Okay. Thank you. And, mm-hmm. you know, this uh, wow. leads into another interesting discussion about the, you know, the heart's uh, preferred fuel source. And, you know, again, all of the organs in our body have this ability to you know, they have the backup plan, the dual fuel source source that can be used, either glucose or uh, ketones, which come from, you know, burning fat and uh, producing fatty acids. Um, But we see that the heart in particular and the brain to a lesser degree uh, seem to have a preference for ketones, for burning fatty acids and for, um, you know, uh, using ketones for fuel over glucose. Um, And that's something that's, you know, unique about the heart. Um, and, uh, you know, we can, uh, there's a, a whole system set up to make sure that the heart gets priority sort of delivery of the, uh, fats that we eat in our food and, and the uh, fatty acids that uh, result from the breakdown there. Um, okay. I, I just, I got it. I got to I got to ask Phil. So if the heart's preferred fuel source is essential fatty acids, and we're starving ourselves of essential fatty acids. What's it doing to the heart? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, again, when we get back to the heart failure model, uh, one of the things that we see is, um, you know, that the ketogenic diet, for instance, has shown some uh, efficacy in improving heart function. Uh, and it's not something that's really talked about or, or, you know, uh, used enough in, uh, in, uh, allopathic medicine. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's an interesting concept. And again, if we, uh, you know, are thinking that heart failure is really resulting from lack of energy in the system, um, then, you know, replenishing that with, with ketones and with ketogenic diets, uh, becomes a, uh, attractive, uh, treatment modality. Okay, Dr. Hussey. More. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, I'm ravenous to hear more. more, I've got a lot of questions, but I want to hear from you. The more part that I'd really like to get into, um, you know, one of the other interesting parts of uh, the things that Stephen has talked about is uh, the angle on, you know, heart cancer and why heart cancer is so rare. 
And to give you a sense, oh, yeah. you know, I've, you know, I've done over 3000 heart surgeries at this point, and I've done less than, you know, 10 for true heart cancer. You know, we do see some benign tumors of the heart more commonly, but true heart cancer is exceedingly rare. And you can look at, you know, the, the busiest heart centers in the world, you know, places like the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic, you know, and they'll every once in a while publish their experience with heart cancer. And, you know, over a 10 year period, they'll have 100 cases, maybe 200 cases. And, you know, these are the places where all the cases are getting sent to. So it gives you a sense of how incredibly rare heart cancer is. And again, it's not something that I really thought that much about. Uh, until, you know, kind of hearing uh, some of Stephen's work and, and you know, in the book uh, about why that might be. Uh, and uh, I'll let uh, Stephen take it from there. Please. Yeah. So this was the interesting thing that I never really thought about either. Um, but like maybe like four years ago or something, somebody asked me and I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, you never really hear about heart cancer. Um, and so but I kind of had an idea in my head based on what I knew about the heart's specific metabolism. Um, but you know, just to kind of, to give away the answer in the beginning. So people have that context. Um, it's largely due to the fact that the heart cells don't divide. Um, so if you think about what cancer is, it's these rapidly dividing undifferentiated, you know, um, anaerobic cells, um, that, that something in the cell triggers that to happen. Um, well, what happens in a cell, where that situation happens, but those cells have lost the ability to divide because somewhere during development, at some point during development, the heart cells stop dividing and becoming new cells, which is why a heart attack is such a big deal. Because if you damage those cells, those are the cells you have. Um, they don't they don't divide and make new cells and replenish the tissue. We have to try and heal the cells that are there. Um, and so, so what happens? You know, because of this, the heart's unique metabolism. I think that um, it. it I think that's one reason why the heart has a unique metabolism, because if you've heard of like the metabolic theory of cancer, um, where we get metabolic shifts in the cell. So this goes back to the work of, of Otto Warburg way back in the 1920s, um, where, you know, when a cell, you know, a cell has mitochondria and mitochondria are the structures in our cells that allow the cell to use oxygen, um, which is what we're breathing in all the time. Um, to take to use oxygen to make energy from glucose or fatty acids or whatever it's called oxidative phosphorylation um, and so if we get a situation where those mitochondria become damaged and the cell can't use oxygen anymore um, to make energy then it, it, it converts over to something called fermentation it starts fermenting things um, to to make energy because it, it's the ability to use oxygen is gone um, and so that's what we see. We see this fermentation, w- which becomes very acidic, which is why we see, you know, um, why cancer cells are acidic. Um, and so in, in that situation, um, the cell can't survive very long. Um, and so it does this kind of survival mechanism thing, which is become this rapidly dividing thing. It's like, we're either going to die or we're going to divide and, you know, hope for a better outcome in the near future. Right. So it's like this short-term survival thing, long-term, not, not so great short-term maybe, maybe we'll stay alive. Right. Um, but that's what happens in a tissue that can, can have cellular division. Now, if that happens in a tissue where we don't get cellular division, um, then, then cancer won't form. Right. 
will get tissue sure, death before before we get cancer. The cell will um, die rather than divide. Right. Yeah. And in my book, I talk about a, a situation where I think that can happen. It has to do with you know having a um, intense stress signal to the heart um, and a, an improper metabolism because you know you know there's all this talk about cholesterol and nutrition and everything with heart disease, but I think that. What's, what's largely overlooked is this component of psychological stress and the balance in the autonomic nervous system because our heart is incredibly um, tuned in to that autonomic nervous system. It's actually sending more signals to the brain than the brain is sending to it. Um, and so when we get this imbalance in stress response, um, that can create a surge in stressful activity in the heart, which can force it to burn more glucose than it would like to, um, you know, because it likes to burn the fatty acids. It's always burning some of each, but um, and, and so in that situation, like, you know, you can imagine like if you went for a run, that's a stress signal to your leg muscles, right? And if you do it long enough, you'll start to get this buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions, and that'll create this burn, this muscle burn, right? Um, because it's building up and in the heart has these mechanisms that kind of protect it against that. Um, however, if there's a situation where we get a, a huge stressful signal to the heart tissue, um, for various reasons, which we can talk about if you like, um, then, uh, then that signals it to burn more glucose than it wants to. We get a buildup of lactic acid, which I think is a cause, maybe not the only cause, a cause of angina, um, chest pain, because that's lactic acid burning in your chest, right? Um, and that can, that can create a situation where we get tissue death, um, you know, with no blockage whatsoever um, because of that buildup of, of lactic acid. Um, and again, that would, like in a normal tissue and other tissues in the body, that may cause cancer to form if it converts to glucose and we get to fermentation and it's just, it's just too much and the cell just starts dividing. Um, but in a heart cell that can't divide because it's lost that ability, it just dies. The tissue dies. Yeah. You know, to uh, sort of continue that analogy, uh, you know, again, an interesting thing we see is that, you know, that distant, that runner who, you know, keeps running and he's basically run out of fuel and he's produced all this lactic acid in his muscles. Um, you know, basically the leg muscles will just stop working. You know, this is what bonking, uh, you know, for people who are, are runners, the term bonking, uh, you know, basically means that the muscle just stops. Now, the heart doesn't have that option. And uh, so, you know, it, it certainly has these protective mechanisms, um, but it makes, uh, you know, we know that, you know, lactic acid builds up, uh, you know, with heart attacks. Um, and it locally in the tissues, uh, you know, that's something that's been well demonstrated. Um, but we always have had these curious uh, sort of, uh, you know, phenomena where, you know, every, you know, and I say every once in a while, but it's probably more common than we recognize that people will have heart attacks without an obvious blockage, um, you know, or without a blockage that is really that significant. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's always been a uh, conundrum uh, and, uh, you know, again, kind of goes against the whole cholesterol and plaque buildup uh, theory as the only reason that we get heart attacks. You know, certainly some heart attacks occur because of gradual buildups, but oftentimes they don't. And we see people with really no, um, you know, evidence of heart disease that all of a sudden will show up, you know, with a heart attack a few months later. I, I actually just had one of my patients, you know, that we uh, he had had that situation in the past, you know, he literally had a heart scan, um, that showed basically no disease. Um, and then 
a few months later, stressful situation, and all of a sudden he has a you know a heart attack. Uh, so it's uh, you know again these 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 things have never been fully explained. I think by our traditional model of of uh, our traditional thinking around heart disease and uh, the concepts that Stephen has brought out. You know do a, you know, I think do a better job of explaining some of these situations. Well, that's what I wanted to, I've got a bunch of questions I want to ask, but one of them is this model seems to turn the, the, the dominant thinking on its head. Um, assuming this model is a, a better explanation for what you observe in the clinic, what, and I'm, I want this question. I want both of you to address this question. What does that imply about how we take care of our health in regards to trying to prevent a heart attack? I mean, maybe it's the same answer we've been given for a year, but 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 this is a different model. This is yeah. I mean, for me. In my book, I kind of take this three-pronged approach. I always go back to these three different imbalances that that can happen in the body um, that I think we should be focusing on. And and that is we want to be metabolically flexible. Um, Another way of saying that, we want to be insulin sensitive. Um, We want to um, be able to burn fatty acids and and be making ketones and and, and just be metabolically healthy. That's one of the, the big ones. We also want to reduce oxidative stress and inflammation, which we've talked about, you know, kind of what that is um, and where that can come from. Um, but the third one is is the biggest one for me, like in, in talking about, you know, this this kind of idea that heart attacks can happen without a blockage. And that is, is maintaining balance in the autonomic nervous system. So, you know, the autonomic nervous system is the, the system of our body that's perceiving our environment through our senses and basically telling us if we're in a safe or threatening environment. So that our body can react accordingly. For in a threatening environment, we got to get away from it. We either fight it off or run away from it or whatever. Um, but if we're in a safe environment, we can focus on things like sleeping or eating or or whatever. Um, and so, it, if we get an imbalance in the system because we are in a world that's giving us um, all of these unnatural stressors, um, you know that, that we're having to deal with, and that it's that combined with the fact that humans have this very big brain. And we're literally the only species that can think our way into a stress response. Um, you know, we can, you know, we, we could have, we could see something happening halfway across the world, not anywhere close to us and be super stressed out about it because we feel for the people who are, who are experiencing that stress. And, you know, we could, we could be um, stuck in, stuck in traffic or be cut off um, uh, in traffic and just be really angry about that. Instead of just having that anger response and then shutting it down and going on without a bed, we could be angry about it all day. You know, we, we can, we could be angry at it for a week. You know, we could stay in that state and that can create this imbalance in the stress response. And, um, and when that happens, um, we can get, I mean, you can think about it. If you're constantly, but incorrectly thinking you're in a, in a, a threatening environment or threatening state, your body's not thinking about digestion. It's not thinking about, um, it's not thinking about detoxification. It's not thinking about sleeping on any of those things. We can get all these kind of dysfunctions that happen in the body, insomnia, uh, digestive issues, all kinds of stuff. But the heart and the gut seem to be incredibly in tune with our emotional state, our, our stress response state. They're, they're more innervated by the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that communicates these signals. Um, 
and especially the heart with our emotional state. There's a reason we say things like, I love you with all my heart and not, I love you with all my kidney or something like that. <laughs> because the heart is, is like, it's, it's kind of like the organ that senses our emotional state and tells our brain how we're feeling. And if you look at it, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. There's, there's nerves intricately um, uh, um, woven between the heart and the muscles of facial expression. You know, so how your heart is feeling is how your face is expressing itself. Uh, uh, um, okay. <laughs> uh, the, we, we, we convey our emotions on our face. Most people do that a lot. A few people are able to have a poker face, but it takes conscious <laughs> effort to do so. Um, and what I hear you saying is that the emotional state that is triggering what is happening with the muscles of our face also is connected to the physical heart, the yeah. heart is the physical heart. And, and there's a nerve pathway between the two. I'm sorry, that just strikes me as an exceptionally odd, uh, utter, utterly not obvious, kind of counterintuitive kind of thing. I, I, am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that it sounds know, we have really these, simple, but really weird. Yeah, we have like these five senses that we talk about all the time, but I think that there are different senses in the body too. Like our, our gut is a sensory organ. Um, that's telling our, our brain a little bit about the external environment of our body because the gut is literally this external environment sealed off inside the body. And the heart is, is this, this organ, I think, that's you know, perceiving our emotions um, and, and conveying that to the body. How are we feeling right now? And, and, and the, um, you know, the nervous, nerve pathways kind of confirm that. Now, when you um, say the emotions, you're not talking about the neurochemical whatever neurochemical is dominant in our bloodstream at the time, you're literally talking about th this ephemeral thing that we call emotion that also is accompanied by these neurochemicals. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, Are there's we talking a reason about we say a that mind we have body connection kind of thing here. Yeah, potentially. I mean, there's a reason we say I have a heartache, you know, and, uh, um, and things like that. Like we're, we, we just like, or, or there's a reason we say like, we gave it all our heart. You know, that's a very emotional thing to say. We don't say yeah. we gave it all our brain. You know, we gave it all our heart when we tried really hard at something, you know, we gave it everything we had. Um, we gave all our emotion to it. Right. Uh, there's, there's, there's just something there. And I don't know that we have it all fleshed out, but it, it makes complete sense that when we look at, you know, these, you know, potential, you know, quote unquote heart attacks that can happen, like they're incredibly tied to our emotional state. And there's a reason that we see things like, you know, I mean, you know, I Phil's, guess for those who I, are listening, Phil's nodding his head. Yes. Here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's situations where like stress can, you know, constrict a coronary artery and that can cause a break off of a soft plaque or something. And that can cause a clot too. But there's also situations that I'm talking about here where it can change. It can force shifts in metabolism that can lead to tissue death as well. Um, and, but either way, it's due to this imbalance in the stress response. Yeah. Um, and, and the key here, the, the big key here is that in the heart tissue and the heart cells, there's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a stress response and a non-stress response that's communicated via the autonomic nervous system. And in heart tissue, the, the stress response signal goes right into the heart cells and the non-stress response signals require nitric oxide 
to get into the heart cells. Nitric oxide is the chemical made in the lining of the endothelia that helps it dilate and, and increases blood flow. Um, and so a healthy um, lining of the artery is essential for making nitric oxide, which is where those, that's where nitric oxide is made is in, in the lining, the, the cells lining the artery. So if we have atherosclerosis or inflammation of the artery and things like that, we're not making as much, as much nitric oxide, then that non-stress signal that's supposed to balance everything out um, of, the, of our stress response to the heart is not getting there um, as well as it could be. Um, and so that's a, it's, it's a connection between things like metabolic health and oxidative stress and this imbalance in our stress response, how it all weaves together and creates this situation, kind of like this perfect storm that can create a lot of issues for people. And you're not yeah. talking about something over which we have control. Oh, I'm feeling stress. I need to breathe and medicate, meditate. You're talking about an autonomic response. Yeah, this is kind of basic uh, instinctual, you know, uh, responses within our body. Um, you know, one other thing that kind of, again, goes along with this is there's a, you know, very well-described condition. It's called Takasubo's uh, cardiomyopathy or stress cardiomyopathy, where um, people after a very stressful event, something like, a, you know, death of a spouse or a child, um, will develop poor heart function. And, you know, you can do cardiac catheterizations on these people and you see they have no blockages in their arteries, you know, nothing that would really explain why their heart isn't functioning well um, and yet their heart isn't functioning well. Um, and they come in presenting like they have a heart attack or a heart failure uh, after a stressful event. Uh, so, you know, this is very well described and it goes along uh, with what Stephen is saying. Um, another sort of piece of information that uh, I'll bring into this that will really probably blow Jack, Jack's mind is um, <laughs> there have been studies done on people who receive heart transplants and they start to take up the characteristics of the person that they got the heart from, uh, you know, character, uh, they'll start to act like them. They'll start to, uh, you know, adopt some of their emotional, uh, states. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, there, there've been studies done on this and, and just, you know, very fascinating work to think about why that might be. Uh, and, you know, these, these connections, uh, these, you know, neurologic pathways between the heart and the brain and uh you know uh oh my god yeah all very all very interesting stuff <laughs> wow yeah so but you know every week i think my mind can't get any more blown than it already has been and oh dear god this is just i'm i'm over the edge yeah now. And, Help us out here. What, where do we go? From and again, here? well, I think to, you know, start to sort of wrap it up, you know, what we, you know, in Stephen's book, as he goes through, you know, kind of his recommendations um, and we see how they end up mirroring a lot of the recommendations I made in my book regarding heart health. And so, you know, we, what I start to see now is a bunch of people who are coming at this problem from all different angles and, you know, even different theories as to why some of these things occur. But we end up back at the same place, you know, paying attention to the food you eat, minimizing the toxins that you're exposed to, dealing with your stress, um, you know, levels and, uh, you know, getting out in the sun and getting good levels of activity, um, you know, and, and these are the things that are going to ultimately lead to 
good heart health. Wow. Okay. Um, I, I've got so many more questions. If I even start, God hmm. knows how long this will go. And I really do my best to try to keep this show at about an hour. <laughs> okay. I, I guess I'm going to just make a command decision here. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the best thing is for people to get your book. Um, I, I trust you go into more detail in the book. Obviously, I'm going to read it now. Um, tell us, how do people take the next step? Um, my, uh, my website is resourceyourhealth.com. Um, and, uh, my blog is on there and I, that's where I do my, my, I do my online health coaching there. Um, but my books are on there as well. Um, people can find the book on Amazon, just understanding the heart. Um, and it's also like Barnes and Noble and on the publisher's website, Chelsea Green. So people want to go different places than Amazon. Um, and then I'm on, uh, social media, um, somewhat reluctantly, but I'm on social media, uh, on Instagram and, and Facebook and Twitter, just, uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey, people can reach out to me there. Um, and I'm posting, you know, you know, more current findings, you know, stuff that didn't make it to the book because it's coming out more recently. I post the, that kind of stuff there too. And um, we will post yeah. this contact information on the show notes, folks. Don't wreck your car trying to write this down in the <laughs> show notes. And uh, I think Stephen definitely goes on our list of uh, people to have as return guests. Uh, you know. Stephen goes on my list of people I want to sit down and have a long <laughs> evening with and ask all these other questions that are whirling in my head. That sounds, but yes, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. Can, also come back. <laughs> yeah, I can talk about this stuff all day long. So I love it. I did a little bit of research when, when Phil told me last week that we were having you on. Um, and he mentioned that he's into this thing called structured water, which was a phrase I'd never heard before. I have uh, a, an appetite for the, the weird and the unusual. So I immediately went down the rabbit hole and I started binge watching Dr. Gerald Pollack and reading mm -hmm. everything I could get, get my hands on. I'm currently working with uh, a scientist who has a device that uses electromagnetic, a pulse electromagnetic frequency mm -hmm. um, therapy to treat a number of different conditions. And I'm, I'm hearing echoes of something that's all related in all of this, especially with the fact that structured water um, carries an electrical charge and can function as a battery when it's charged by light, by, by, by electromagnetic rays, the most effective of which is ultraviolet. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm, I was just listening to a Dr. Joe Dispenza today who mm -hmm. talked about getting your mind straight. And that takes us back to this oxidative stress that you're talking about and, and how it, oh my God. Yep. It's, it's, it's all, all interwoven together. Yeah. All right. So we've got your website, we've got your book. Um, anything else before we wrap it up for the day? Uh, I think I think we're good. Unless, unless we open another rabbit hole, I think we're good. <laughs> I've got I've got a rabbit I really want to chase, but it's going to take way too long. Phil, thank you, man. Yep. I just feel so blessed that I get to participate in this kind of stuff. It's fantastic. 
All right. Um, anything you want to add before we finish up? No, another great episode. And uh, like I said, we'll definitely have Stephen back again. All right. Sounds well, good. for Dr. Stephen Hussey, for Dr. Philip Ovedia, I'm Jack Heald. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. You can follow Dr. Ovedia at iFixHearts on Twitter. You can go to iFixHearts.co and take his metabolic health quiz. Find out where you stand and what you need to work on. And uh, I think that'll do it, other than get this guy back on the show, Phil. Can't wait to talk more. We'll talk to you all next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.